Jordan and Gretzky, Serena and Ruth, remembering great ones is easy to do. What about the names who spent their whole lives? Walks down the footballs and catching sacrifice. They're guys, remember that guy. Third down, long yardage needed for the first down, and Gabriel hits Vince Papale at midfield. That is not enough for Remember That Guy, the show where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present. Hey there, folks. Team one, your host, James, and I am ready for the open tryouts for the role of Mark Wahlberg. We'll see who else can come down, but I'm glad to hear join you in line for that role, James. But we're not worried about ourselves right now. We're worried about a very special guest that we have. It is the man that portrayed the equipment manager that gave him sage advice in that movie. <laughs> Please introduce yourself. All right, I'm glad you went that way. I was a little worried. As much as I like Mark Wahlberg as an actor, there are some very problematic things with him, and I can just hopefully assume that the equipment manager does not have the same level of past. But it's so me, I, very special guest Xavier. I have no idea off the top of my head who plays the equipment manager. Can I just guess? Is it Carl Weathers? Could be that, could be like Mr. T as the wise janitor. That's certainly the archetype that we're going for, yes. Sorry, the archetype. That's a new one, I like that. I think I pulled that out for Diocles. I was saying that he fits all of the archetypal mentions. There we go. But we don't need to turn all the way back to Diocles to have memories, because I bet one of the two of you has got some lovely memories for us that are being made right now. Well, I was talking with Xavier about this a little bit before we started, and I'm hesitant because... This show's ability to curse is very well documented at this point. But I think that mostly just relates to when we make actual predictions. So I'm not going to predict anything. I'm just going to observe that the vibes around the fills have never been higher than they are right now. We're about three weeks into the post-ovation world. And it's a beautiful world. Thrilled to be living in this world. Of course, referring to Trey Turner, record signing shortstop for the Phillies. All-star throughout his career, has a great World Baseball Classic, and promptly is arguably the worst shortstop in baseball for the first roughly 100 games of the season. In terms of skill and also amount of runway given to display, at the time, lack of skill. Well, I mean, it's certainly the worst player per dollar received in currency was certainly Trey Turner, but he has a really rough road trip. He is very accountable during that road trip. At one point, he straight up says, I'm the reason we lost this game tonight. And, you know, the fans give him the standing ovation. And he's probably the best shortstop in baseball since that ovation. It is undeniable that the turnaround happened in concurrence with the ovation. I'm not saying that the ovation caused the turnaround, but it is indisputable that the two events occurred at the same time. Last night, on Tuesday night, Phils get a huge comeback win over the Giants. We're battling with them for wildcard positioning. I think if we can get home games, it's really hard to imagine us losing home games in front of that playoff crowd. So the more wins we can rack up, the better. And I mean, Trey with the, the walk-off single in that win last night. Off of Camila Doval, who has been great as a closer all year. So for the lineup to do it in a spot like that, in a game that 
Trey said afterwards, like, yeah, that felt like a playoff atmosphere. And it's it, it really struck me because the Phillies, once a year they do, a, it's like a night in the park where the, the announcing crew sits in the stands and they call the game from the stands. And I went to that game last year. The Phillies also got a walk-off hit in that game. Uh, it was Nick Maton, who's no longer with the team. And there was probably generously 15,000 in attendance that night. Crazy what one beautiful playoff run can do because that park was packed last night. It's just it's just so fun when they're good, man. It's it's really it's a it's a very simple thing to say, but I like when my baseball team is good. I have no feelings about my baseball team whatsoever. I'm completely numb to my <laughs> baseball team. I hate John Angelos with a burning passion, but I'm so happy that the Phillies, I'm so glad that last year's world series run is not just going to be followed by a huge fucking bummer. Like it looked like it kind of would for a little bit. Right. And I mean, if it had gone that way, it would have added to how special that team is like the 93 fills always get talked about in this town. And they're always going to get talked about because it was a fun team that Sucked before that season and sucked after that season, but for one magical year, everything kind of just coalesced. We'll see. I mean, we're we're in our we're in our stupid money era. I think all of the money that John Angelos can't find made its stupid way up by ninety five and found its way to John Middleton because that dude is the best kind of billionaire in that he spends all of his money on things that make me happy, which is seeing my team win. So I hope he continues to spend all of his fortune. In exactly that way. It's the best utilitarian way that he can possibly access my hippocampus and make some memories. Just think of murdering John Angelus again. I'm sorry, we've said the name twice, and like all I can think about is his, his tiny little neck in between my hands, slowly crushing the life out of him. Hey, hey allegedly. 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 It's Schrodinger's neck. I mean, by the time you hear this, here, let me see. Is this episode coming out on an off day after a time when the Orioles might have had like a nice win, making everyone feel good about the team? Because if so, John Angelus has probably done another stupid thing and uh, allegedly I'll want to kill him some more. Strictly, hypothetically, and allegedly. But if we can delve out of the realm of hypotheticals and allegations, what is a, a true, actual thing that has happened in reality that has made memories for you, James? There is actually one thing that I feel uh, very, very positive about. Uh, you guys have seen the NBA Facebook post. Yes, from the, the social media intern who was like, hey, I still have this, by the way, horrible workplace culture here. Precisely. So someone who worked for the NBA social media team no longer worked for them. And I'm just going to read the post that they left, presumably on their way out. This was left on August 21st. How do I log out of this? Haven't worked here in weeks. Anyway, the NBA overextends its social media employees greatly to the detriment of their health and social lives. A salary of less than $50,000 annually after taxes. I worked 14-hour shifts without breaks at times. Shout out Adam Silver. We don't get health insurance until 90 days on the... That's silly, isn't it? Glad I resigned. No need for a job to get in the way of your happiness. Donate to mental health causes. Peace sign emoji. I, sorry, I should clarify. Peace sign with fingers emoji. <laughs> Very important distinction. Just... Like at a time where labor's on the mind, we've talked about labor here on the show, work in a museum that just talks about labor constantly. It is just nice to see someone get to leave in a big old blaze of glory every once in a while. So 
only thing that brought me any joy on Monday after John Angelo said a lot of really stupid stuff. In the New York Times! Hey, New York Times, you don't have a sports section anymore! You just cancel your sports section, and like two weeks after that, you decide to give this giant fucking profile to John goddamn Angelos? I'm sorry, we need to stop talking about this, clearly. Xavier, what's making memories for you? Okay, because it's me, I guess I have to start with the Women's World Cup, which I'm happy about the result. Spain winning the World Cup, Salma Parayelo, best young player. But unfortunately, this has been overshadowed by the absolute horribleness of the Spanish Federation. And I didn't have a chance to really get into this previously, so I want to take it back a little bit for some context. The Spanish coach, Jorge Vilda, is a Nepo hire. His father is in charge of the Spanish Federation, like on the women's side. And Jorge Vilda has been the Spanish coach since 2015. And he was very bad at his job. Like, they had underperformed for the longest time despite having some very talented players. And last year, there was essentially a, a, a dispute where 15 of the women on the team said, we will not play for this man again. We want him fired. And I do want to point out that this wasn't like any sort of like harassment or anything allegations against Vilda. It was mostly he's just really bad at his job and we believe he's only there because his family is close with the president of the Spanish Federation, Luis Rubiales. Some of our viewers may have noticed, but throughout the tournament, when Spain was winning, they were not celebrating with the coach. They do not like Vilda. And 12 of the 15 that had originally called for his firing did not end up back with the team. Only a couple, including Aitana Bonmati, who won the Golden Ball as best player of the entire tournament, one of the only three that, that came back. Even with this win, they still do not want Vilda there. But dislike of Vilda has been overshadowed by the outright awful actions of Luis Rubiales, the president of the RFEF, who, after the final, grabbed Jenny Hermoso, star player, pulled her head in and kissed her right on the lips while grabbing the rest of her body. And then later on, picked up another player and tried carrying her over his shoulders. And then later at the celebration, next to the queen and princess of Spain, grabbed his genitals in a thrusting motion to celebrate victory. When he was called out on this, he said that everyone was idiots for questioning him and that it's fine. Jenny Hermoso like, said on Instagram that she was not comfortable with it and was not happy about it. And then after a bunch of further outrage from Spanish politicians and other members of the Federation, Rubiales had a very lame half-apology. Since then, it's also come out that Vilda and Rubiales essentially begged Hermoso and her family to put out a statement saying that she was not upset about this action and that everyone else was making it a big deal and were trying to pressure her to appear in an apology video. Since then, Hermoso has come out with a statement through the union essentially saying that, no, she believes she was assaulted by Rubiales. And now there is going to be a extraordinary session on Friday for the Spanish FA where it seems like they're probably going to have to fire this guy, although I don't know how they fired the guy who's in charge. He is a politician, and I'm 
honestly not even that confident that there will be a resolution, but make no bones about it. The Spanish women's team won the World Cup despite hating their coach, who was a nepotism hire and terrible. And then while celebrating, one of the star players gets sexually assaulted by the president of the federation. This is not normal. They literally won the World Cup. They are the best in the world. And they are still treated like second class by their own federation. When the president believes that he can just grab a woman by the face and kiss her against her will, pick another woman up, and then call everyone idiots who called him out on it, then we still have a lot of problems in, in, in the world. And I feel awful for Hermoso. I feel awful for the women's team that, you know, instead of being able to truly celebrate their win, have to deal with terrible sexism and assault stuff. And it just, it, it, it sucks, and I hate it. And to people who would say that uh, we as sports fans are hypocritical for enjoying, say, when Emiliano Martinez, you know, did the whole, hey, look at the Golden Glove thing. Like, it was funny. And that's also because Emiliano Martinez did anything to deserve to be up on that podium in the first place. Yeah, obviously there's a difference when a player gets too amped celebrating and only to their own body. No, yes. And not, like, yes, if, the glove was his penis, not anyone yes. else's penis. If he did it to somebody else, then that could have been like a, an issue too. So it's it, definitely not the same, but it's not great. I don't like it. And I hope that something important happens to kind of clear out this very sexist old guard at the Spanish Federation. Other than that, there are two other quick things I wanted to talk about. One, Corey Davis announced that he's retiring today. Only 28 years old, had been expected to be, you know, a major part of the Jets offense, but had been away from the team for a couple weeks due to family and personal issues. And you know what? I hope that he's just doing okay. In his retirement post, it sounds like this is just something he's been thinking about for a while. Like, I, I hope that this was of his own volition and there's nothing more negative going on. All the best to Corey Davis. The last thing I want to talk about was your weekly realignment update. As of this afternoon, the 23rd, there was a new update that the ACC was going to meet again to discuss adding Cal and Stanford and SMU. The interesting part about this one is that, according to Pete Thamel, the way this would work is that by adding these three schools, the ACC gets an extra like pro rata payment from ESPN, but it does not go to these three schools. They would turn it into a bonus pool for their higher-performing schools to try to keep Florida State and Clemson from going nuts. Meanwhile, Cal and Stanford would come in at a reduced rate as, like, partial members, which sets a terrible precedent for, I don't know, Boston College and Syracuse going forward. I would hate that because how soon until, you know, you get forced to take partial shares. And SMU would forego media payments for seven years. I got for Texas. seven years. Essentially foregoing... 200 plus million dollars plus having to do exit payments like just to get in the fourth best power for conference i get why they're doing it because smu has the money but they also haven't been that great at football in the american you know they're definitely not on the level of like houston or cincy or ucf who just left you think with all that money, they would be dominating lower-level competition. I don't know how well they do in the ACC, 
And I really don't think that adding those three schools would keep Florida State and Clemson from trying to get out. And say their lawyers figure that out in the next seven years, then SMU is in a collapsing ACC, not having made a single cent from the league. I get why they want to do it, but it seems like an insane gamble to me to just assume that in seven years the ACC will still be perfectly fine. Actually, longer than that, because they wouldn't go in until 2024, so then they're not getting paid until 2031. No one knows what's going to happen in 2031. There could just be an SEC and a Big Ten that are each 30 teams at that point. Seems like a crazy risk to me, but if you got that Texas oil money, I guess you could do it. The most silly thing to me whenever we talk about the business of college sports, because again, like it takes like a long view where we're talking about payments made in 2032, 2033. And like the kids that are going to be getting recruited then are in like third grade right now, which just adds like a layer of silliness to this whole thing. Just the whole realignment, the the numbers don't matter. Big 12 is 10, the big 10 is 20, Pac-12 is four, like, It's just so, so dumb. I hate it very much. Not quite as much as I hate John Angelus. I do hate it, though. And if I may kind of offer some amount of hope, I'd like to paraphrase a quote from Ursula K. Le Guin. We live in the era of stupid realignment. Its power seems inescapable. So did the divine right of kings. Hopefully someday we can uh, overcome this. But, you know, interesting thing, Ursula K. Le Guin, someone who famously has been unhappy with a lot of adaptations of her works. And Diaz, as I understand it, that's actually a phenomenal segue into what we have to talk about today. I mean, I'm floored by the segue. I just, I want to ruminate on that segue for a second. I want the listener to ruminate on it. But with that being said, in this guy, Bunel, we have a deep love, not just for sports, but for sports movies. Sports movies, though, are not always the best at telling the truth. Recently, Baltimore Ravens legend Michael Ower has been in the news for his lawsuit that deals with his portrayal in The Blind Side and the fact that the Tui family, depicted as the family that takes him in in that film, had him sign a conservatorship under false pretenses and has kept all the money from the film. Now, that's what the lawsuit has to deal with, but the film itself also not great. It portrays Michael Lower as this behemoth that, to quote from the film, has strong protection instincts, but is of below average intelligence. This is already a pretty troubling and not very flattering description. And perhaps the most absurd thing of the film itself is that Michael Lower has no idea what he's doing on a football field until a 5'5 white woman portrayed by Sandra Bullock takes him in and teaches him what a three-point stance is, and then he becomes an All-American and he goes to college thanks to his white savior. That's probably the most absurd part of the entire film because in reality, Michael Lower was already a five-star recruit before he ever even met the Tui family. Bomani Jones, I think, summed it up the best when he did his segment on the most racist sports films ever made that... It's no doubt a runaway for all two hours and six minutes of its runtime. Hollywood loves to stretch, to exaggerate, or even straight up fabricate major details if it can help with selling a story. But this guy, Bunel, we are only interested in true stories about real guys, which is why our topic this week is guys whose movie portrayal was inaccurate. For my guy, I want to go with a movie that is a lot closer to the inspired by a true story than the based on a true story. 
The movie Hoosiers tells the story of the smallest school to ever win the single-class state basketball championship in Indiana. That's about where the similarities end. Before I get to the differences, just real quick, do either of you want to guess what year Hoosiers came out? Like 87? 82. It was 86. Okay. Uh, which to me, like, I guess just because it was a timepiece, it felt like 86 was like way more recent than I expected it to be or something. I mean, it's like how Happy Days came out in the 80s, but you think about it and you think of the 50s. Exactly. No, it's, I, I guess a good comparison for it. And another fun fact. So it's obviously it's Hoosiers, but in England and in Australia, they had no context for what a Hoosier was or, you know, what are we even doing with that? So they thought the better marketing decision would be to call the film Best Shot in England and in Australia. There are movie posters you can find with Gene Hackman wistfully staring at a basketball court over a cornfield, and it just says Best Shot. Which I think we can safely say is not what that marketing team gave. Really phoned it in. We'll get to somebody who did give it their best shot, but first I just want to run through a couple of the differences between the film and reality. In the movie, it's the Hickory Huskers that go on this miracle run to win the championship. In real life, it's the Milan. Uh, it's spelled like Milan, like the Italian city, but it's pronounced Milan. Indigenous peoples, but it wasn't indigenous peoples. It was Indians. So this is one thing that the film did that was probably for the best, that they changed that name. In the movie, the coach is Norman Dale. He's a troubled coach in his 50s with a fiery past, largely inspired by Bobby Knight, the film's makers would later say. Uh, in reality, the coach is Marvin Wood. He's a much more mild-mannered man. He's in his mid-20s when he leads the team to the championship. And his players always say he never yelled, very mild-mannered. In the movie, the team only has seven players, which includes the equipment manager, Ollie. Ali was the equipment manager in real life, but he never took the court. The team had plenty of players. They had a full 12-man roster. So also fabricated, you know, trying to accentuate this kind of small school feel that we're going for. Finally, in the movie, it's Jimmy Chitwood, who is the star player to hit the last shot in the final game. But in reality, it's the guy that I want to talk about today, Bobby Plump. Bobby Plump? Bobby Plump, yeah, like plump like a, like a Thanksgiving turkey. I love turkey. it. <laughs> Bobby Jean Plump, too. I don't know if the middle name adds any brownie points. A little bit. But Bobby Jean Plump is born September 9th, 1936 in Pierceville, Indiana, which is a town that has a population of 45. Very small town, but he's one of six children. So in this small town, so a large his, family. His family is more than one-sixth of the town. Eight of uh, 45. Very nearly one-fifth. So in this small town, he grows up in a larger family. His father was a school teacher for about 17 years. But by the time the sixth kid came around, realized school teacher salary, probably not enough to be able to provide for this family. So he instead goes to work at a pump factory. One year, it's Christmas time. Money's a little tight. So dad has to get creative with this Christmas gift. He requisitions some extra materials from the job site, a little wood, a little metal, get some hammer and nails in there. Let's bend that metal into a circle. And uh, he puts together a backboard. Bobby still describes it. It's the best Christmas gift that they ever got. There's not a lot of structures to hang it on at the family home, but they do have a smokehouse. And there's a point that's about nine feet up. Younger Bobby, he's about 
eight years old when this gets installed. So he's totally fine with the nine foot rim. A little easier for him to get it up there. And they would install a light for night games as well. So it's not long until the entire town is gathering on the plump residence so that they can play these games of basketball night and day. Navigating the court, though, can be a little tricky. First of all, paved driveways just don't exist in the 1940s. You have gravel. Anybody that's ever played basketball on a gravel driveway, on a gravel surface, ball's bouncing all over the place. So it can be real hard to dribble. And the other thing is, I mean, this is country living that we're talking about. If you're driving left behind the basket, there's going to be a manure pile there most of the time. Depends whether or not it's been deployed yet into the farm, into the crops. So if you drive hard left, chances are if you end up going too much past the rim, you're going to end up in that manure pile. Plump said he's a very cerebral player. He would use this to his advantage, not as a defender, knowing that people don't want to go towards the manure pile, but as a slasher to the rim, he would gladly go hard left, end up in that manure pile. Quote, oh, end up in it. Oh, it, it no, wasn't he, just a mental game. He's like, I'm willing to throw myself into the shit. Well, he's fully willing to get right into the shit. He's about the shit. And the real reason why he does it is he says, they didn't guard you too well after you were in the manure pile. You can't argue with that it. Sound, that sounds like Booger McFarland shit himself to make everyone not want to touch him. I mean, look, by any means necessary, whether it's self-produced or whether it's, you know, from the horses, from the cows, sometimes you got to go through some shit if you want to find your way to some success. Before we get to Bobby's high school career, uh, he's about 12 years old. His next door neighbor, Glenn Butt, they're shooting around on the hoop one night. Uh, and they decide to turn on the radio and they tune into the high school state championship game, which is being played that night. Turns out the game this night ends up being maybe the greatest game in the history of the state championship. Jasper beats Madison 62 to 61. It's only the second time that the state championship has been decided by one point. As Bobby and Glenn are shooting around and listening to this game, they resolve to themselves, you know, one day we want to play in that state championship. Problem with that, this is a very, very, very tiny school. Milan High School has an enrollment of 161. So not a huge pool to select from, but like thousands of small towns all across Indiana, they're basketball obsessed. There are 70 boys that come out to try for the high school team every year. We do some simple math, 161, if we assume an equal gender distribution, that means that there are 10 kids at the entire school that didn't try out for the basketball team. Shout outs to my spiritual brethren in those 10 kids. The quiet children that want to read books on the sideline and watch the sports. Well, and you also have to think that there's probably a decent amount of that 70 that don't even want to try out for the team. But because basketball is so integral to what it means to be a Hoosier, to be from Indiana, fuck, I need to at least go try out for the team or I'm not getting dinner when I come home. It's, it's a big deal there. Before we even get to high school, though, Milan has a real strong middle school program. And Bobby excels for that team. He stars for them. And by the time he reaches high school, it's no surprise, head coach Herman Grinstead, better known by his name of Snort, immediately knows what he has. Good old Snort is absolutely beloved by this Milan community. And this is an aspect of the film that is accurate because Snort doesn't end up making it to this Milan miracle run that we eventually have. In the film, it's because the previous coach died. That's not what happened to Snort. 
He's the coach for the first two years while Bobby is going the mile and high. But after Bobby's sophomore year, Coach Snort is fired by Superintendent Willard Green because he ordered new uniforms without approval from the school. He didn't get the budget. He didn't respect the process. He didn't respect the hierarchy. And so no more of him. The school is kind of thrust into turmoil here. The whole town loves Coach Snort, but they actually make out pretty well when they sign a 24-year-old recent alumnus of the Butler Bulldogs basketball program, Marvin Wood. So Marvin's just a couple years removed from his collegiate playing career. He's now coaching. And there's a couple key differences between Marvin and Snort as coaches. Snort ran a run-and-gun style, get up and down the court as quick as possible, beat teams with our pace because we're a smaller team. Coach Wood wanted to do the exact opposite. He wanted to slow it down. He wanted to go to a four-corners offense, spread the defense. Let's take our time. Let's get the best shot, not the quickest shot. The other thing he does is he's fairly ahead of his time with his aggressive trapping defense. At this time, most people are kind of just in strict man-to-man, but he's willing to you know, pull off the closest defender, trap hard in the ball. If we get him in a tricky part of the court, see what we can do. So this is kind of ahead of its time. The most controversial change that he made, at least with the town people, was that he closed all the practices to the public. Again, we're talking about very small towns. We're talking about a high school with an enrollment of 161. The people don't have shit to do. Literally, the greatest form of entertainment that they have on a day-by-day basis It's just going to see the basketball team practice. Coach Wood says, I need to work in private, closing to the public, and they are pissed. I'm just sorry that, like, people didn't have more entertainment options. Not that I'm sure this wasn't a great bonding experience, but also... Going to watch 15-year-olds. Not a game. Not a game. We're talking about practice. We are talking about practice. Like, it's just passing drills. Remarkable. Looking crisp out uh, there, y'all. Hey, hey, touch the line on your sprints. Finish short of the line. I do get why you need that to be closed off. I don't want a bunch of old guys telling me how to play basketball while I'm running through practice. Right, and also, I mean, as a younger coach, you know that, to them at least, again, Coach Marvin Wood, all accounts of him are that he is like a very soft-spoken, mild-mannered man, wouldn't hurt a fly, wouldn't offend anybody, but... Even that person has to know that it's not going to help him establish a culture leading this team if some fucking 55-year-old that works at the general store who played for the team 30 years ago is like, well, you know, what we used to do back then was blah, 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 blah. He just doesn't need that. So this new young coach comes in with these new methods, and the town's a little skeptical at first, but the 52-53 season begins, and there's instant results. The team qualifies for the sectionals and win that to advance the regionals. And now Milan has been to the regionals before, but they've never won a game at regionals. This is kind of like where they bow out. It's looking for all the world like they're going to do that again. They're playing Morton Memorial and they're down by nine in the fourth quarter. They're starting to come back. And then when there's about two minutes left, they're down by three. And the timekeeper just forgot to start the clock after a timeout. It's probably about 30 seconds that go by here without the clock running. And it's pointed out to the refs. And basically the decision is, oh, shit. Start it now. Better get that started now. Yeah. (laughs) It's like the Colorado fifth down 
Or you could also draw the parallel to the USA-USSR three attempts to inbound game. Controversy abounds, but all that matters is they're able to bring it back. They tie it up. They force overtime. They force double overtime. And finally, Milan wins to advance to the regional final. They win this. They advance to the semi-states. You got to win two more now, and you can make it to the state semifinal. We're basically in the Sweet 16. They win both games, and they advance to the state semifinals, which are played at Butler Fieldhouse. This obviously is a homecoming game for Coach Wood, and this is one where I had to give credit to the movie. Probably the two most memorable scenes are when Coach is talking to Jimmy Chitwood. Jimmy doesn't want to play for the team, and he basically tells him at the end, I don't care if you play for my team. And after making every shot so far, once he hears that, Jimmy misses. Nothing like that scene ever happens. Bobby Plump never had to be convinced to play for Marvin Wood. But the second scene that people probably will think of from that movie, when they first step into Butler Fieldhouse, the whole team's in awe. They can't believe how big this arena is. Coach brings out a tape measure and asks him to measure the rim. And they say it's 10 feet. Then he asks him to measure the foul line. And they say it's 15 feet. And he says, you might find that these dimensions are exactly the same as they are back at our home gym. Basically making that point, look, the venue might be bigger. The game's exactly the same. The rules are exactly the same. That did happen in real life. So props to the film department for including that scene. You got the small school. They're coming to the big venue. We got to put their minds at ease and we got to make sure that they're ready for this moment. This is an opportunity that this school may never have again. In the semifinals. They get bitch-smacked 56-37 by South Bend Central. It's not even close. They have no business hanging with this bigger school. And they're out of the tournament. Real life doesn't give you the movie ending that you want sometimes. But, thankfully for Bobby, this was only his junior season. This is, again, where the movie defers from reality a little bit. Because when we enter Bobby Plump's senior year, secret's out. This tiny school, Milan, they have some ballers. They're returning four of their five starters from this team that just went to the state semifinals. Not the semi-states, the state semifinals. Two Super different things. mega hypersectionals. Exactly. Deluxe. They end with tremendously high expectations. Bobby's one of the four returning starters, as I mentioned. Childhood friend and next-door neighbor, Glenn Butt. He's back for his senior year as well. He's coming off the bench. They have this dream team reassembled, trying to finish the job. Plump and butt, coached by Wood. Good old plump butt and Wood, baby. But to help them prepare for the grind of the tournament that they just went through, they know they're going to have to go through again. They want to play a more difficult regular season schedule. So they schedule some tougher opponents. Start 8-0. Then they go to Frankfurt, who is a four-time champion of the Indiana State Basketball Tournament. They suffer their first loss, 49-47, but they prove that they belong. They finish 11 and 1 with that one loss coming in the second last game of the regular season, 54 to 45, to an upstart Aurora school that was also having its most successful time in its school's history. Now we're to that state tournament again. You, you win every game in front of you, you win the championship. All you got to do is keep winning. In sectionals, they're expected to dominate three games. They win all three by an average margin of 24.3. We advance to regionals. In regionals, Host Rushville is their opponent in the first game. They win easily, 58-34. This sets up a regional final rematch with Aurora. This time with place in the semi-states, not the state semis. The semi-states, 
on the line. Aurora proves they belong, but Milan proves that with their veteran experience, they are the better team. They win 46-38. In the semi-states, this year these are competed at Butler Fieldhouse. So we're already back there. We don't even need to get to the Final Four. But they're playing at Butler Fieldhouse, and they're actually playing the only school in the tournament to advance this far to be even smaller than them. The Montezuma Aztecs, enrollment 79. You know, the Cinderella story can't win. You have to be not the most Cinderella story. Exactly, because we all know the clock strikes midnight eventually on Cinderella. Montezuma does very well. But we don't feel Montezuma's revenge. What we do feel is a Milan victory, 44-34. They're going to advance to the semi-state finals for a chance to make it to the state semifinals. Super mega hypersectionals. Peter Piper picked a patch of pickled packed peppers. However that one goes. Next one, thankfully, it's a little easier to say some of these names. With a spot in the state championships on the line, the state semifinals, they face Crispus Attucks, one of the few all-black schools in the tournament. And they're led by a sophomore sensation by the name of Oscar Robertson. I was hoping it it was going to be O-Rob. Once you said Crispus Attucks, I knew who went to that school. Absolutely flooring to see this name pop up in our research. They go against Oscar Robertson. He's only a sophomore, though. Which is why, while Big O puts up 22 points, not enough to outlast Bobby Plump's 28 en route to a 65-52 victory for Milan to advance to the state semifinals. From here, their semifinal is against Gerstmeier Tech of Terra Haupt. Gerstmeier is also returning a majority of their starters. They also made it to the Final Four last year. So... In some aspects, this could be viewed at as the championship game. Like the classic year when it's like somehow a five seed and a six seed are in the AFC championship. And meanwhile, we got two 15 and two teams playing in the NFC championship. It's two of the favorites to win the whole tournament. And Gerstmeyer has their own Bobby Plump. His name is Arlie Andrews, best player in the history of the school. So Marvin Wood's whole plan is to stop him. He holds Arlie to only nine points. Bobby puts up 22. And their 13-point difference, just one more than the margin in the game, 60-48, to Milan wins. Now they advance to the state final. They face Muncie Central, about as apropos a matchup as you could ever hope for in the state final. Muncie didn't win the title in 53 this previous year, but they did win it in 51 and 52. They were tied for having won the most championships in Indiana State history with four. So they are about as much of a juggernaut as you get in this format. It's a low-scoring game the whole way. Bobby is playing very below his standards, just not his best game. Entering the fourth quarter, he's shooting just two of nine from the floor. But they're playing good defense, and as we enter the fourth quarter, it's knotted at 26. Shortly into the fourth quarter, Muncie scores. They go up 28-26. Different schools led by different men and with lesser players might panic in this situation. But Coach Wood knows what his system is. Bobby Plump knows how to execute that system. And so they go to the four corners, and they wait. And they wait. And they wait. Quarters are eight minutes. Muncie scored at about 7.30. 
They do not dribble the ball towards the rim until there's three minutes left in the fourth quarter. They are milking this clock, but they know they have their guy. They know they're going to get him in his spot. Bobby Plum gives up the ball to a dribble handoff. He comes around the back end on a backdoor screen, catches it at the top of the key, takes a 15-foot jumper, and he misses it. They wasted all this time, and now they're still down two. That is, uh, first off, the shot clock's one of the greatest things ever invented. Second off, that is kind of a ball don't lie. If you sit on it for three minutes, you kind of deserve that. I mean, I inherently agree with you. I also love the shot clock. But it's also, you need to think... When you are the smaller school with the smaller players. Sure, play to, play to the meta. That is what you have to do in this situation. I respect that. Just God bless the shot clock. God bless the shot clock. But now Muncie got the rebounds. Now all you got to do is take care of the basketball. But Coach Wood has this aggressive trapping defense. They immediately force a turnover. And coming back down, it's Ray Kraft that comes to the right side, hits a 12-foot jumper, ties the score up at 28. Munty comes back down. They get a couple offensive rebounds. They're not able to put it in the hole. Now Milan gets the ball. It's about a minute 30 left. They come back down the court, and it's Raycraft that has the ball because they're going full ball denial on Bobby. They're going too hard with the ball denial, though, it, which, first of all, the ball denial shows the respect that they had for Bobby Plump in that he was 2-10 in this game and still the most terrifying thing to them. But in going so hard to deny him the ball, they do foul him. They're in the bonus, so Bobby Plump goes to the line. And what really just epitomizes how pure of a shooter he is, he's not doing the underhand thing that a lot of people are doing back then. He said, you're going to put me on the line, I'm going to shoot my normal shot, and he's going to drain both of them. Milan now with about a minute left. They're up 30 to 28. Muncie inbounds. They immediately throw the ball away again. The trapping defense works. It's a minute left. And now, I mean, if you can just run this minute, you're the champions. They go four corners. They're swinging the ball around. And Ray Kraft decides that he wants to have the moment at glory. He drives into the rim. And it spins and hits every part. And it just sits on the back iron. And then it falls off. Muncie immediately comes down running the other way. They get a shot right at the rim. They put it in. Now with 40 seconds left, it's back tied at 30. Milan runs some clock, gets it down to about 18 seconds on the clock. They call timeout. And Coach Marvin Wood calls a really simple play. To paraphrase what Doug Collins once said about Michael Jordan, the play call was to get the ball to Bobby and everybody else get the fuck out of the way. The mistake that Muncie makes in this game is that you fouled Bobby Plump. You put him on the line and you let him see two in a row go through the hole after he'd been struggling all game. If you're a pure hooper, I don't care if it's 1953. I don't care if it's 2023. If you're off your game, but you see that ball go through the hole, that's all you need sometimes. That's all Bobby Plump needed. They inbound to him at the top of the key. He takes it down to about eight seconds. He drives hard right, gets the advantage, stops, elevates, bangs a 15-foot jumper. There's about three seconds left, but the clock doesn't stop on a made basket. There's no timeouts left. Not enough time to get a shot off. Milan has pulled it off. They have won the state championship. They are the smallest school in the history of Indiana. And then going against a Muncie school that had over 10 times the enrollment that they had. They shocked the world and they win the state basketball championship. Just real quick, did they have like an alcoholic dad that was hanging around all the time? The alcoholic dad was not real. They had two assistant coaches, both non-alcoholics. 
So unfortunately, that, that part's not real. And to hear Bobby Plump talk about it, he says, look, I love the movie. The movie's great. It's a great way to honor our team. There's a lot of things that are inspired by truth in that movie. The only thing that's factual is the last 10 seconds of the game. That was one thing that, again, like they were very faithful in the recreation of exactly what the move was that Bobby pulled off to win it. The one thing that wasn't true from that is they call the play and originally it's to use Jimmy Chitwood as a decoy. And then the team is kind of just there silently. And then Jimmy Chitwood says, I'll make it. That never happened. Bobby Plump says he was such a humble kid and he was also playing so poorly in that game. He would never in a million years think to say, I'll make it when he'd been two of 10 from the floor so far. But he made it. But he made it. And for those efforts, Bobby was named the 1954 Indiana Mr. Basketball. Future winners of that award would include the Big O, uh, Steve Alford, Glenn Robinson, senior to clarify, Bryce Drew, and Greg Oden. And I mean, presumably Larry Bird. Let's make sure. Yeah, as I look here, I do not see that Larry Bird ever won Indiana Mr. Basketball. Honestly, if anything, I have more respect for this war being uh, so discerning. Kyle Guy, also a winner. Oof, may have to revisit that at some point. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll check back in on, on Kyle Guy in a little bit. The Big O didn't just have Mr. Basketball of Indiana to show for his high school career. The following two years after he loses to our boy Bobby Plump and Mylan, he then wins the next two Indiana State Championships. And in so doing... Chris Posadix became the first all-black school to win the Indiana State Basketball Championship. So, shout out Big O there. First and f- all-black school in the country to win any state championship. There you go. And it just speaks more to the legend of Oscar Robertson. And we're, and we're glad that he got those two. But, for right now, I'm at least glad that Bobby got that victory in the semi-states to help power this miraculous story. The other funny thing, so he won Indiana Mr. Basketball, which again was a de facto best player on the team that won the championship award back then. But he also received the Trester Award for Attitude, Sportsmanship, and Character, which up to that point had always been awarded to a member of the losing team. As like a, hey, you did good, way to be a good sport out there. You, that- you shot so badly on the winning team that we are going to also give you the consolation prize we've given to the big choker in the game before. Well, no, it's, it's actually almost exactly the opposite. That is how much Bobby Plump had captured the imaginations of the state of Indiana by that point. Like he is fully a household name by the time he gets back to the state championship this year. The better comparison, I guess would be like, Michael Jordan goes 2 of 18 and then hits the game winner. That's kind of what we're talking about here with Bobby Plum. Coming off of high school, how do you follow up this moment? There's no possible way to get to higher heights. Yeah, the movie's over as I understand it. The movie ends and we fade to black and Jimmy Chitwood disappears into the ether. But Bobby Plum continues to exist and continues to have a life to live. He's going to follow Coach Wood's footsteps. He's going to do the reverse where he's going to go to Butler after leaving Milan. Pretty successful career there. Ray Kraft also will join him. Ray Kraft, not too successful at Butler, but Bobby kind of just picks up where he left off. He averages 12 points his freshman year. In total, he played 87 games, averaging 16.3 points a game in his time there. All four years played under head coach Tony Hinkle, the namesake of Hinkle Fieldhouse, as it is now known. No longer Butler Fieldhouse. 
After that, Bobby has a chance to go to the NBA. Uh, he's being offered a salary of 4000 But the Phillips 66ers of the National Industrial Basketball League are offering him $6,600 salary. He's a simple man. He's going to follow the money. And, and this is the NIBL is kind of the equivalent of like those semi-pro barnstorming baseball teams where it's like affiliated with like, say, General Electric. Sure. That was my question. I was trying to think of whether it couldn't possibly be Phillips, the electronic manufacturer from Europe. No, it's Phillips Petroleum. Right. Phillips Petroleum. Plays for them for three seasons. They win the championship in his second season. But after his third season, the league folds and so ends the professional basketball career of Bobby Plump. But it's not all just about basketball with Bobby. He's still going to have a pretty fulfilling life after this. Goes on to great success in two endeavors post-basketball. Firstly, he goes into financial consulting. Gets a lot of business just based on the fact like, hey, you're that guy that hit that shot at the state championship. It's a pretty good soft entry to millions of Indiana homes. So that helps him out. Uh, And he also opens up a restaurant in Indianapolis, which is still open to this day, called Plump's Last Shot. They're well-reviewed. Their signature item is their pork tenderloin sandwich. It was voted best in Indiana in 2011. And to this day, Bobby, aged 86, still healthy and well, if a high school team makes the pilgrimage to his restaurant and they let the restaurant know ahead of time, like, hey, we're coming because I've told my team about Bobby Plump. Bobby will make no bones about it. He will come in. He'll sit down with that team and he will regale them with stories of the legendary season known as simply the Milan Miracle. And I think that's awesome. I think it's incredible that this guy hit this shot almost 70 years ago and people are still talking about it to this day. The restaurant still exists to this day. The fact that he's just such a cultural icon within Indiana, he was named one of the 50 greatest sports figures in the history of Indiana from the 20th century by Sports Illustrated. He was named one of the most noteworthy Hoosiers of the 20th century by Indianapolis Monthly Magazine. And this is all just because he won a high school basketball tournament. I think that speaks to how much the state of Indiana is just truly maniacal about this sport of basketball. It's a story that truly we will never see again. In 1997, the state of Indiana abandoned the single class format to instead divide schools up into four different classifications based on the size of their enrollment, which in terms of fairness of competition is probably the right call. We don't need these juggernauts beating up on these smaller schools, especially as the resource disparity is much wider now. So, you know, we'll never get a story like this again, but I think that uniqueness makes that Milan basketball team so special. I think that's why their story is preserved in film. That's also why I was happy to bring up this topic and to to set the story straight on the story of Bobby Plump because Jimmy Chitwood is kind of just like a one-note character. Can't even really tell if he likes basketball. He's just really good at it. But the real Bobby Plump, a very good story of his own, very memorable, and I think certainly worthy of recognition with the honorific guy. And no matter what, Diaz, you can know that even if he doesn't win, you did give it your best shot. Exactly. And it wasn't my last shot like his restaurant. It was just my best shot like people in London say of their favorite Gene Hackman basketball film. It was really interesting because 
I have to say that I, I thought you were going to go a totally different way when you said you were picking basketball. And it's interesting because Bobby Plump is someone that if you just watch the movie Hoosiers, you might never think about it because obviously it's fictionalized with a different person. I even was interested, so I checked the Hoosiers Wikipedia page. His name appears one time in the entire Wikipedia page just for saying that the final basket was made on the same spot as his actual game winner. So it's, it's interesting because I, I'm trying to think, like, unless you were a Hoosier, someone in Indiana, like, who loved basketball, how many people watching Hoosiers just casually will ever think about Bobby Plump? Right. The idea of Bobby Plump is in their head because of Jimmy Chetwood. But if you had never heard of Bobby Plump before this episode, I hope you at least now appreciate a Hoosier legend in his own right and uh, certainly deserves to be remembered. The status of the movie is definitely important for further discussion, but of course we have to bring up the rest of the guys before we get to that discussion. And if I may piggyback off something you just said there, Diaz, the one note aspect of Jimmy Chitwood. Now, Jimmy Chitwood is ostensibly one of the main protagonists, if not the protagonist, uh, along with Gene Hackman and Dennis Hopper. But every movie does need a villain. And that, I think, even more than someone like a Jimmy Chitwood, tends to fall into a one-note category when not necessarily done well. But when done well, when you've got a a rich, ogre-like onion of antagonist layers that gives you this full, complex individual, that's really when you can elevate a piece of drama. And for that reason, I want to talk about a, we won't say villain, but certainly someone that will be put in as an antagonist. As I bring up my guy today, Max Bear. That is... Oh, uh, Max Bear, of course. Of course. Yes. I, know, I, know where, I know where we're going with this. Yes. And you might all know him from his birth name, Maximilian Adelbert Bear. Really good and honestly kind of sucks that he left it for Max at some point. But he was born Maximilian Adelbert Bear on February 11th, 1909 to his parents in Omaha, Nebraska. Those parents are his mother, Dora Bale, and his father, Jacob Bear. He is a second-generation Central European Jewish immigrant, and that will be important later. By May of 1922, uh, he's 12 going on 13. The family just can't take this weather anymore here in the Midwest. And so they get up and they move to the Bay Area, where Dora already had a sister living. Jacob, the father, he had been working in the meatpacking and the butchering industry, and so he just kind of ports right on over that. My 1928s done well enough that the the family they get a little hog and cattle ranch in the area where the whole family's involved. He's got two sisters. The eldest one's husband is a partner in the ranch, and Max himself he's working with his brother Jacob or Buddy, and their adopted brother August or Augie. You know, out here working in this cattle farm, and this is kind of his true life Rocky superhero origin because he said basically working with big shoulders of beef and pork and knocking out cows with a single blow was his big like training that filled out this six foot two frame that he has. And so he decides, you know what? It's time to put these muscles to work. Let out all of my raging hormones in a productive way and take up the sport of boxing. Boxing? The West Coast, 1929, it's a pretty local affair. And so from May to December of 1929, he only boxes in two small Oakland arenas, which is impressive given that he fits 16 fights into that period. Goes 15 and one. And he's fighting guys like Tilly Tavera, Sailor Leeds, Chief Caribou. And he also has consecutive fights against an individual named Benny Hill. The next year, He gets some L.A. bookings, and by August, 
22 and three knocks out a guy named KO Krishner. He's on top of the world. And there is all of a sudden a bit of a speed bump. We're like a year into the great depression and the sport of boxing and its governing bodies have been thrown into chaos. So promoters are trying to like take advantage of this and make big momentous things that they think can kind of seize the conversation about the sport. And so some promoters get a Pacific coast champion bout set up in San Francisco between Max and Frankie Campbell, who's respectable, 33, 4, and 3 at the time. But this is kind of supposed to be a coronation of Max before they send him out to the East Coast. Round two, Bayer actually slips in the ring a little bit. Campbell thinks he's getting the count, so he turns away. And Bayer gets up, clocks him right from kind of behind. The fight keeps going at this point there. Uh, and actually, Frankie Campbell, for what it's worth, gets him in the next two rounds. But eventually, the trainer of Frankie Campbell, his name was Tilly Herman. He had until recently been a friend of Max Bayer. But now he's on the opposite side. He's yelling from the corner, taunting Max Bayer. And Max Bayer all of a sudden just sees red and pummels Frankie Campbell against the ropes. He falls to the ground and he lays there for about an entire hour before an ambulance finally comes. The exact word from the doctor. His brain had been knocked completely loose from his skull. This does eventually lead to the passing of Frankie Campbell. But to be clear, this is incredibly distressing Max. Like he's devastated by this happening. He takes a trip immediately to the hospital. He's talking to Frankie Campbell's wife. He is there when they announce that Frankie Campbell has passed on and he just like breaks into sobs on the ground. So this is like Max knew that he had basically just killed this man in a fight. And Bayer is initially booked for manslaughter for this. Charges end up being dismissed. He loses his license in California for a full year and really is thinking like, you know what? Maybe I should not be boxing. When forced to immediately confront, not not just that you killed somebody, but also your own mortality in that ring, because you need to go to a kind of special place, I think, mm-hmm. to be able to compete like that. And then this snaps you out of that special place and reminds you like, no, this is still about the most dangerous thing you could do recreationally. Well, and, and to your point on that, that's actually something that Frankie Campbell's widow at this point, well, I guess wife, because he was still alive when she said this, but soon to be widow, uh, says to Max Bayer while they're in the hospital, like, it could have been you. Everyone wants him to make peace with this, but he is a completely changed man. He truly doesn't know if he wants to continue boxing. He takes up smoking, which is an excellent choice for an athlete to do in their 20s. Thing is, Max Bayer really loves the crowd. He really loves fame. Four months later, he does return to the ring. He makes good on the East Coast plans, goes out and gets like a bunch of good matchups with some big contenders like Tom Heaney, Ernie Schaff, Tommy Longren. There is just something like really different about him that people know. Number one, he'd always hammed it up. He's always been a little bit of a performer, but he's really playing up to the crowd right now, like any chance that he gets. Two, seems to be pulling his punches a little bit, almost like he's kind of afraid of his strength. For number three, that's probably why he's losing more than he ever has before. He drops four of his next six fights, including two of the three that he gets at Madison Square Garden. This could be a major turning point. This talented and charismatic guy like tries to push through this trauma and he just can't do it. But a hand is extended to him. And that hand belongs to former heavyweight champion Jack Dempsey, who's taken an interest in him. They take him back to the West Coast. They change up his approach. And back in the Bay Area, he gets right back to business from September of 1931 until July 4th of 1932. Wins his next 10 straight fights, which does include another trip back east. And then he gets to his next fight in Chicago versus Ernie Schaff, who'd beaten him in that very first fight in New York. This is not particularly close. Bayer totally knocks him around. This is his 11th straight win. He wins a 12th about a month later. And then he takes a little break. 
And during that break, Shav has a matchup against another important player that we'll have in this story. The gentle giant, the ambling Alp, the vast Venetian, Dupreme, all of those nicknames, each one better than the last. Primo Carnero, big Italian boxer at this point, and he knocks out Shaft. And then Ernie Shaft dies in the ring. Now we know that it was probably contributed to by a case of influenza and meningitis that he had at that time. And while this is like five months after Max Bayer, because of Max Bayer's reputation, everyone just kind of chalks this up to the damage that he sustained against Max Bayer. Like, they don't even really talk about Primo Carnera. It's all just like how Max Bayer really set that guy up to get killed five months later. And so, again, this just, like, really gets to him. I mean, he's devastated by these people referring to him as twice a murderer. Goes away for a while, but cannot turn away from the fame. And in June of 1933, we're going to set up for his four biggest fights of his career. Number one, it is a clash of the Maxes. As Bayer, in his 38-7 and record, he travels to the Bronx. 60,000 people pack Yankee Stadium to see him take on Max Schlemming, who is from Germany. And this is taking place right after Adolf Hitler just got elected to power in Germany. So while Max was raised Catholic, dad was Jewish, and that's plenty Jewish for the Nazis to make a very big deal out of this. For the record, I do want to say that does not include Max Schlemming. Max Schlemming is not a member of the Nazi party. Schmelling. Schmelling. My apologies. I wrote it incorrectly. That's pretty embarrassing for me. It says Schlemming here in my notes. Max Schlemming. We're schlurping. We're schlurping. And I don't know if Max Schlemming was a Nazi, but Max Schmelling was not a Nazi. But Bayer decides, okay, fine. If we're going to play this up, let's dance. So he starts to really play up his Jewish heritage. He gets a giant Star of David on his trunks. So this is going to become a fight with some sociopolitical context to it. I love Uh, how boxing has set the stage for just like blatantly playing the ethnic tensions that WWF would later perfect with Hulk Hogan and Iron Sheik. And I mean, this is also right around the time. You're going to have Captain America punch out Hitler later on. You're going to have that one dude that punched the shit out of Richard Spencer. People like to see people associated with Nazism get punched. Unfortunately, Schmeling is associated with Nazism in this case, and he does get absolutely decked by Max Bayer. Jack Dempsey says it's like the greatest fight he has seen in over a decade. This is enormous for keeping the sport of boxing during the Great Depression. Does he die? He does not die, but the German radio feed dies as soon as they realize that he's losing. They cut the feed entirely to Germany on the radio. Also, just one thing I want to share from when I found out that Max Bayer was uh, a Jewish boxer. I did get confused for a little bit. I was walking through his uh, stats and it described his stance as orthodox. I was like, oh, it didn't mention anything about being an orthodox Jew. Anyway, (laughs) so that was nice. But you know what Max Bayer still doesn't have at this point? He doesn't have a belt. The guy who holds that belt right now is none other than Dupreme, Primo Carnera. He re-enters the scene. It's about a year later, June 34th. We're still in New York. This time we're in Madison Square Garden Bowl in Long Island City. You've got Clark Gable in the stands. You've got Babe Ruth. You've got President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Everybody is here to see Primo probably beat the shit out of Max Bayer. A lot of people are figuring because he got all those mountainous nicknames because he's six foot six and 53 pounds bigger than Max Bayer. And But Max is at the peak of his powers. Reporters on hand say that it's like a mason chipping away at a block of marble slowly. Primo eventually at the 11th round knocked down to the ground by a just brutal left and barely able to speak, just looks at the ref. Ref knows to call it. And Max Bayer is champion of the world. He is 
reported later when he's on the massage table for hours, he's just muttering to himself over and over with this look of glee, heavyweight champion of the world, heavyweight champion of the world. And he already loved being a celebrity. So now as the heavyweight champion of the world, he's an even bigger celebrity. And he also loves that. And for the next year, he lives that up as much as he possibly can. And a lot of this does not include preparing for fights. Um, he is eventually going to have to fight a defense. So they try to get a pretty easy opponent for him to face. This guy named Jim Braddock, who's a fun story here in the Depression. He was a guy who'd had to leave boxing for a little bit, come back as a longshoreman in his hometown to make money to support his family. He's learning how to be a longshoreman with his left hand because part of the reason he left boxing is because he's injured his right hand so badly. But now, with this rebuilt stance, eventually he returns to boxing gets the nickname Cinderella Man because of this inspiring backstory, and he gets a big shot at a payday to basically, like a week one college football team, get his block knocked off by Max Bayer. We have reports of this being as low as 8-1 to one odds. Like, that's the best odds that I found anyone having recorded. Saw 10-1 to one a lot of places. Saw 30-1 to one in some places for Jim Braddock against Max Bayer. So this was not expected to be close at all, but... Bayer just had not taken this the slightest bit seriously. And Jim Braddock took it very, very seriously. Just absolutely tagging him the entire time. Eventually, later on in the match, Bayer does start to turn it on, but he's just dug himself too deep of a hole. He realizes that Braddock isn't just going to get outlasted by him and go down. He's going to have to actually fight this. And after 15 rounds, the unanimous decision does go to Jim Braddock. Bayer, for his part totally gracious and contrite about this and he gives all the credit in the world to the incredible preparation by jim braddock for this he held the title for just under a year and maybe once again we see a guy who doesn't have that much of an attachment to the sport of boxing he's really just in it for the celebrity is this the end of it no we do have one more of these four very important fights because a couple days later joe lewis another up-and-coming fighter who notably is black also knocks out Primo Carnera. I feel bad that Primo Carnera has to keep getting knocked down, but this sets up a fun matchup between this up-and-coming Black Star and Max Bayer, who is ready to actually be serious, put in like six weeks of no nightclubs, no skirt chasing, both of those direct quotes from what his trainers told him he had to do for six weeks, and then he gets into the ring that September, and none of it matters because Joe Lewis just absolutely works him. In round two, he is knocked down for the first time ever. He does get back up, but that happens two more times before he is finally actually knocked out in the fourth round. Ironically, it would come out later on, many, many years later, that in his fight against Braddock, who famously used his left hand because his injuries to his right hand, he had really, really badly broken his right hand and so largely had to fight Joe Lewis with his left hand, six weeks was not enough to make up the longshoreman experience that Braddock had. And so this is the crazy four-fight run. He's got a lot more fight in him. He does continue to go around the country for several more years, winning 20 straight against a bunch of lesser opponents who do at the very least have very good names. Nails Gorman, Cyclone Lynch, Bearcat Wright, Cowboy Sammy Evans, just to name a few. Can I just say the first 10 fights that he has after Joe Lewis, because I have his pro boxing record up right now. Yes. He doesn't fight for about nine months after losing to Joe Lewis. And then he fights three times in four days, four times in a week. And then I think it's 10 times in a span of a month. Yeah, he more or less like went back out to those super quick turnaround Western leagues where you would just 
knock out a bunch of Palooka Joes because he was the big name Max Bayer that was drawn in all the crowds. And he eventually has like a couple more respectable fights with guys like Tommy Farr, who is uh, from Wales, a South African named Ben Ford. I had to elongate that because it's got two O's in it. And he does also have the first ever televised heavyweight fight, also at Yankee Stadium in 1939 against a guy named Lou Nova, who had the cosmic punch. That cosmic punch does knock him out. And in fact, a couple years later in a rematch, his 81st match, the cosmic punch once again knocks him out. And that time he does decide to end the career with 68 wins. God, it would have been nice if he could have gotten that last one, but 53 so bite knockout. But cry not because he's been working on another career this whole time. That first break that he took in 1933, that was when he decided to film his feature film debut called The Prize Fighter and the Lady. He played an up and coming boxer, kind of based on him. And he fought Primo Carnera and Jack Dempsey in the movie, both playing themselves in cameos. And that was the main thing that he did for a while. But then later on, once he retires, he's like, I like this entertainment shtick. I just am a ham. And so he and his brother Buddy both, like after serving in World War II, just basically like go to Hollywood. They're doing a bunch of acting in movies like an Abbott and Costello movie called uh, Africa Screams. And I think that's probably something that none of us should ever try and see a single second of. <laughs> and then he's in a very important film called The Harder They Fall with Humphrey Bogart. This one is loosely based off the life of Primo Carnera. Now, this is also done without Primo Carnera's approval. It is all kind of like a sordid half biography, half fiction. And the main villain in it is a guy based on Max Bayer named Buddy Brammon. And when they're trying to figure out who to get in Hollywood to play this asshole version of Max Bayer, they decide to just cast Max Bayer. They make him out to be this like total shithead who plays up these two guys that he's killed in the ring, for instance. And all of a sudden, because Max Bayer came up in this like weird 30s time where not a lot of the fights were preserved and stuff, this kind of becomes the overwhelming image of Max Bayer, which is not helped by the fact that sadly, shortly after this film releases, Max Bayer, he was uh, a celebrity ref a lot of the time for boxing and wrestling matches. In fact, he even refereed the wrestling debut of one Primo Carnera. They just can't avoid each other. But after one of these matches in November of 59, he goes out drinking with the crowd. This is mentioned in every article about it. He very specifically goes to the 18-year-old son of a former sparring partner of his to fulfill a promise he had made 13 years ago to give him a foreign sports car on his 18th birthday. So we know for a fact that he did that this night. And then he goes to a hotel, promptly feels some chest pains. He calls down to the front office. They say, oh, we'll send a house doctor up right away. Uh, this is a direct quote. House doctor? No, dummy, I need a people doctor. <laughs> Till the end, he cannot stop joking. The, the doctors later are administering oxygen and he's, he's still joking. Oh, I've had worse attacks. And then he slumps, turns blue and says, oh God, here I go. And those are the final words of Max Bayer, who does pass away there on November 21st, 1959, at the age of 50. Now, we have described, I think, an incredibly complex villain, if you want to pitch him as a villain against one of his many opponents, perhaps Primo Carnera, perhaps either of the men whose lives he ended. But instead, in 2005, Ron Howard and Russell Crowe, having recently done A Beautiful Mind, both won Oscars for it, this is also, I think, a great time for us to decide whether it's pronounced Gyopic or Gyopic. I don't know which one we want to go with. Either one that we want to select, that's what Ron Howard films about. The Cinderella Man, Jim Braddock. The movie's entitled Cinderella Man, and they need a villain. They pick Max Bayer for that fight. It makes sense. That is time that he wins the title. 
surely they won't make him out to be like some kind of horrible one-note monster that Jim Braddock needs to overcome. It is astonishing, having learned about him now, how much they basically just make this movie about Jim Braddock fighting Buddy Brannon instead of actually fighting Max Bayer. They portray him as so vicious. Jim Braddock is forced to watch a film of Max Bayer being fought. Like the promoter has to sit him down because legally they have to show him what he's getting into. Max Bayer, who's like gleefully proclaiming the entire time, oh yeah, I fucking murdered two people. I love it. Just this vicious assassination really of his character and plenty of people since then have spoken about this. I do want to point out that it is not the fault of Craig Bierko. That is the name of the actor that he portrays him. Does an excellent job with the material that he's given. One thing though about the material he's given to just kind of further illustrate the denigration of Max Bayer, they made the Star of David on his trunks like 10 times smaller. They couldn't bring themselves to actually do away with it, but they shrunk it down so much smaller. It's a small thing. Like, that doesn't matter that much, but it does feel in the larger scheme of making this guy out to be a horrific villain, just such an unnecessary detail to fixate on. And they they don't succeed as much as the previous collaboration of Crow and Howard did with A Beautiful Mind. They don't win any Oscars for this. And they end up getting a lot of flack for this in the years. I do want to make it clear that plenty of people who knew Max Bayer have spoken out, most notably Max Bayer's son, Max Bayer Jr., who knows a little something about Hollywood because he's actually, he followed his dad's footsteps, not as a boxer, but as an actor, he's one of the stars of Beverly Hillbillies. He's the handsome (laughs) hillbilly. I'm not going to say the name because I don't assume any of us, I've watched exactly one episode of the Beverly Hillbillies. All of it, like I, I have, I mostly wanted to focus on Max Bayer and not so much the story itself because the story just kind of bums me out that it is not accurate in what could have been such a stronger antagonist and what I think ultimately would have made this piece of drama stronger if you had a complex force that Jim Braddock had to go against instead. They stack him up against this different version of Max Bayer who lost control of the story because he had to be a villain in someone else's story. But I hope that I have convinced you that his story stands on its own. And beyond that, I hope that I have proven that even if he is not the Cinderella man, perhaps he is the Cinderella guy. There's a lot there. I will admit, I had never seen Cinderella Man, so I had no idea that he was portrayed so villainously. I, I knew about the win over uh, Schmeling. And people questioned, like, oh, how Jewish is he really? It makes me feel the way where people talk about, like, oh, how trans is this person? Are they just saying they're trans and identifying as a woman to participate in women's? Hey, you wouldn't willingly take on all the negative externalities of that identity in this society just to fucking get like what little bit of capital you would get in that sports world. Right. If like, if you were a sociopath, you would not make this decision because you thought it would like result in more net gain for you. Adolf Hitler's favorite boxer. Like that is a known fact. You don't go up against his boxer and choose to portray yourself as Jewish. I think you, you gotta feel a little sense of pride at that point to be doing it. No, you for sure do. But I I think, Because, like, when you mentioned that they made the Star of David so much smaller on his shorts, like, I wonder if that was because they were like, okay, we can say this guy's a piece of shit, but we can't say he's a Jewish piece of shit because then we're anti-Semitic. But we also don't want to deny his heritage. So that's how I think you get the brain logic of saying, like, okay, just make it a smaller Star of David. (laughs) It's wild. 
and I hope I've made a case, but there is, of course, still one more case to be made, Xavier. Okay. Who here has seen Boxcatcher? Oh, shit, man. We can't do the fucking DuPonts! <laughs> we can't do the fucking DuPonts! Yes, There's sick people! So, as, as James has intuited, Foxcatcher is a psychological drama biopic about the intersection of classism and patriotism, the might of obscene financial wealth, power dynamics, and just how terrifying it can be with the most powerful person in a room is also the most paranoid and the most dangerous. But for the context of this podcast, it is also a movie about the life of Mark and Dave Schultz and their relationship with John E. DuPont. I am going to focus on Mark, both in his background and in the role he plays in Foxcatcher, but just because of the nature of the history and of the movie, there will be talk about Dave and DuPont as well. Mark Schultz was born October 26, 1960 in Palo Alto, California. He was the second son to Dorothy and Philip after Dave was born 17 months prior. Random fun fact, their grandfather was a Stanford professor who invented the salmon ladder and was the one to discover that salmon returned to the rivers they were born in to spawn before they die. So, very interesting family there. Grandfather figures that out. Grandmother was a very respected like, scientist. Interesting family. Mark attended Palo Alto High. Initially, he was a gymnast. And he was really good at it. He won the Northern California All-Around Gymnastics Championship uh, in the 15 to 16-year-old age group. And then, for his junior year, he moved to Ashland, Oregon. And started doing... Tang Soo Do Karate. While there, he got into a fight with Dave, and he quit Tang Soo Do. So instead, not being able to compete in gymnastics and not being able to do the thing that he tried when he first got there, he tries out for the Ashland High School wrestling team. He tries out in the 130-pound division, and he's not very good. Four and six, he struggles. It's not like gymnastics, which he had taken to so early. And then he transfers back to Palo Alto. He's ineligible to compete for the rest of that year because he had already competed at Ashland. So that's it for him in his junior year. So going into his senior season, had been a great gymnast, trying wrestling now, not very good. But over the summer after his junior year, he grew like five inches and gained 30 pounds. And Palo Alto's wrestling coach was also his previous gymnast coach, so he knew how to get Mark to perform. Plans all these big tournaments for Mark to try to make sure that everything's looking great. And then Mark breaks his toe and can't compete in the first tournament. Then at the next tournament, loses in his first match and gets eliminated. Then at his third tournament, wins a couple of matches and finishes third. But that's it. Those are the three tournaments that were set for that year. So now we get to state qualifiers. So far, Mark has competed in two, losing in one in the first round and finishing third in another. So nothing much is expected of him. But then he wins the Santa Clara Valley Athletic League Championship, the, the lowest level regional qualifier with nine different schools attending. Then he goes to the next highest regions championship with 20 different schools having wrestlers attending that he wins 
And then he goes to the Central Coast Section Championship, which has wrestlers from 90 different schools. And Mark wins, defeating the defending champion, Joe Guillory. And he gets named CCS Outstanding Wrestler. With that, Mark gets to go to the full California State Championships in 1978. He defeats three undefeated wrestlers to win the state championship, and to this day is the only California high school state champion to have never won a tournament prior to state qualifiers. This is not a thing that happens. If you're going to be good early, as a freshman or a sophomore, you've probably won some other titles before then. If you're you know, a senior, you expect to have won literally anything beforehand. But Mark, because he took it on so late and was not good at it until it just kind of clicked, he also gets named Palo Alto High School Athlete of the Year. But unfortunately for Mark, most outside observers did not really credit any of the success to him because they had assumed that Mark had been training with Dave because the year before this, Dave had what was considered the greatest high school wrestling season ever. He competed internationally at a major tournament in the country of Georgia against the Soviets, who were considered the best wrestlers in the world, where he had won silver. Then, because he had missed state qualifiers competing internationally for the USA, they gave him a wild card to the States, where he then won, dominating every single opponent. He then went to the U.S. Nationals, winning the U.S. National Open. To this day, Dave was so dominant in that year that the National Wrestling Hall of Fame gives out the Dave Schultz High School Excellence Award to the best high school wrestler in America. Did Mark win the Dave Schultz High School Excellence Award? No. That would have been so delicious. And I just I want to be clear here. This Dave Schultz has no relation to David Schultz, who beat the shit out of people while on ice skates for the Flyers. Yes, no, no relation. Just wanted to make sure. So... Mark, everyone thinks that, oh, he must have just been training with Dave and he got like all of Dave's best tips and that's why he won. But Mark's accomplishments were his own. Dave, as any logical observer would expect, was super busy with his own college career at this point. So they never trained together until well after Mark's super senior season because Mark hadn't taken wrestling seriously until his senior year. Dave was taking it very, very seriously. When would they have had the time to train together? Everyone just assumed that it was due to Dave's teachings and helping his brother. Dave was not even in the picture at this point. After high school, Mark commits to wrestle at UCLA. He was a solid but not spectacular freshman year. He's like 18 and 8, nothing too great. But this time, he chooses to transfer to the University of Oklahoma, specifically following after Dave, who had started off at Oklahoma State, and then transferred to Oklahoma himself. Oklahoma has a phenomenal wrestling program at this point, one of the best in the country. Not as good as like Iowa or Nebraska, but still really good. And at Oklahoma, Mark actually one-ups Dave. Dave, three-time All-American, national championships, gets a bronze with Oklahoma State in 1978, then after having sit out to transfer, silver in 1981 with Oklahoma, and then gold in 1982 with Oklahoma as well at 167 pounds. Important to note, that there are a bunch of different weight classes, usually like 10 in the two main disciplines, the freestyle and then the Greco-Roman. They are freestyle wrestlers. Mark, in his three years in Norman, wins gold every single year. In 1981, he wins at 167 pounds. Then in 1982 and 1983, wins at 177 pounds. 
1982, he gets named the outstanding wrestler for the entire tournament, regardless of weight class. 1983, he's 27-0, which is the most wins in an undefeated season in OU history, and gets named OU Student Athlete of the Year. He gets voted by his peers as the college wrestler of the decade in the book The Golden Era of Amateur Wrestling, 1980s by Reginald Rowe. And then in 1984, both Mark and Dave are favorites at the Olympics. This is helped by the fact that the Soviets and Eastern Bloc countries boycott the 1984 Olympics. So most of the strongest competitors are not there. And they do both win Olympic gold in 1984. Mickey Mouse medals, though. Listen, that that medal don't have an asterisk, though. (laughs) The medal does not have an asterisk. That is true. But yeah, Mark wins at the 82 kilogram weight class. And he's a gold medalist. And so is his brother. The next year, Mark proves that his win was no fluke. At the 1985 World Championships, which were held in Bulgaria, the Eastern Bloc countries did compete. And of the 20-plus gold medalist wrestlers to compete, Mark is the only one that defends his title at the Worlds. So it is not a fluke. He is one of the best wrestlers in the world and the best at his weight class. Then we get to Foxcatcher time. Now I'm going to jump back and forth between real life and Foxcatcher life because, you know, the movie does take liberties with timelines. It is very true to the general framework of how things happened, but compressed for, you know, movie reasons. This movie opens early 1987 and Mark is standing in for Dave to give a speech on patriotism to a bunch of bored elementary school students rolling their eyes and ignoring him. He then sits in the office with, like, the principal, writing him a check for $20 in exchange for doing so. Mark then goes home in his beat-up car and crushes a bunch of ramen with his hands after putting his medal away, and then eats it. But it's, it's Channing Tatum doing it. So. It is Channing Tatum doing this. Yes, it, it is Channing Tatum hunched over like this. Like Mark, at this point, has been fired from his assistant coaching job at Stanford, barely scraping together. Supposedly, the budgetary restraints at Stanford meant that they need to get rid of someone. So they get rid of Mark, but keep Dave, because That's Dave hysterical. had a wife and kids, and Mark was single. So I guess they would feel bad about firing Dave. So they fire Mark. And Mark, he's an Olympic gold medalist and a world champion with absolutely no money. Right after this, cuts to Mark going to train with Dave. And Dave, who was played by Mark Ruffalo, continually getting the better of Mark to the point where a frustrated Mark headbutts him, causing him to bleed all over his shirt. And then Dave still pins him. This movie is extremely unsettling at times. There's a lot of silence only broken by the sounds of movement and camera shots that linger just long enough to make you like physically uncomfortable with what's going on. But this opening really is trying to hammer home the point that despite all his accomplishments only shown off screen and talked about, Mark is a loser, very insecure, financially unstable. And then Mark gets a phone call, come out to Pennsylvania at the request of John E. DuPont. In the movie, DuPont 
appeals to Mark's sense of patriotism and loss and wants Mark to move out to PA so he can train there for the World Championships and the Seoul Olympics with DuPont as his sponsor. There is a scene where Mark tries to go back to Dave to try to get him to come. Quote, the country has lost their morals and values and kids are lost and they don't have role models. We can do that. We can be that for them. Which was all based on a speech that DuPont gives to Mark at Valley Forge. It is really, really getting in your face. In real life, when Mark moved out there, he actually moved to become the coach at Villanova. DuPont had essentially tried to bankroll a new Villanova wrestling program as a way to give himself credibility before the Team Fox catcher stuff. But they just kind of compressed that into, no, he's living there to be on Team Foxcatcher. But regardless, Mark stays in Pennsylvania, becomes the core of the new Team Foxcatcher. And Mark excels. He wins another gold medal at the 1987 World Wrestling Championships. And things look great, but DuPont, a very paranoid individual, is still pretty upset about his inability to recruit Dave to come out to Pennsylvania as well. Dave is settled with his family, doesn't want to move, and DuPont doesn't like that. There is a scene after the World Championships where despite DuPont really wanting Dave there, has a heartfelt talk with Mark about how he could do great things without his brother. And Mark opening up about his insecurities, everything that he's accomplished has been attributed to Dave. He's never been able to really celebrate himself and have people accept that he is a good wrestler on his own. The movie delves heavily into the friendship between Mark and DuPont really portrayed on Mark's side as a father-son relationship that Mark didn't really ever have because his parents got divorced at an early age. Included scenes of DuPont introducing him to cocaine and some very homoerotic and uncomfortable wrestling encounters that have a sexual implication from DuPont's side. There's one scene where DuPont comes to Mark's room late at night and then they go wrestle in the dark of the training center by themselves. And then it cuts to a shirtless Mark cutting DuPont's hair and then doing cocaine with him. It gets very uncomfortable. And again, like, intentionally so. Just, it's just guys being dudes, cutting each other's hair, cutting up some lines. I mean, what more can you ask for? You're already surrounded by mirrors. <laughs> so, big inciting moment in this movie, which is... A little different than how like came out in real life. DuPont's mother, who had her own love of sport through championship horses, called wrestling a low sport for low people that she hates. And a pissed off DuPont goes to the gym and sees no one there. Because Mark and the Foxcatcher team had taken the morning off to watch MMA. DuPont was pissed by this and still frustrated about not having Dave there. So he slaps Mark in the face in front of the team and calls him an ungrateful ape and that he made a mistake bringing him there and that he was going to bring Dave no matter what the cost was. Mark heavily disputes this. He said that there is zero chance he ever would have put up with DuPont lapping him in the face. The actual story is more of he did yell at him and belittle him in front of the team and that caused the fracture in their relationship that, from what Mark says, was never really as close as the movie portrays it in the first place, but he definitely wasn't slapped by him. Another important thing to note is that in the film, DuPont is shown to have a very large fascination with guns throughout the movie, 
He had a shooting range on his property that the police used to train. That is apparently 100% real. Did love guns, did have a very close relationship with the police to the point where they gave him a badge and let him pretend to be a cop. That's the Herschel Walker badge. Yes, but he had the rich person badge. As the child of someone who grew up in Wilmington, the DuPonts own the state of Delaware entirely. And I just want to say, he was known to be a fucking weirdo for decades. Yeah, very, very weird person. You know, he, there's a scene where he walks into practice with a handgun, telling everyone to have a good job while just holding a gun straight down. He got pissed about a military vehicle he bought not having a mounted 50 cal machine gun on it. In the movie, right after this, Dave decides to move to Pennsylvania with his family and work with Foxcatcher. And they have it that Mark is the only person who doesn't meet with him. In reality, Dave doesn't come for another year, but like I said, compressed timelines. Despite the shattered relationship with DuPont, Mark continues to train. He then loses his first match at the Olympic trials. And he goes on a massive eating binge in his hotel room, just stuffing his face with cakes, candy, and all types of stuff. In the movie, they have Dave break down his door after not being able to get a hold of him and help him lose 12 pounds in 90 minutes to make weight for his next match. Apparently, all of that did happen, including the 12 pounds in 90 minutes lost. But it was not Dave. It was actually... Mark's best friend, but they changed that in the movie to play up the relationship with the brothers. But he does lose 12 pounds in 90 minutes and is able to win his next couple of matches and make the Olympic team. But he does not want to stay with Foxcatcher at this point. At the same time, DuPont is growing an influence with USA Wrestling, makes a deal with them. Foxcatcher Farms is going to become the permanent home of USA Wrestling in exchange for $500,000 a year which is a massive amount for USA Wrestling at the time. Foxcatcher is paying them half a mil. Yes, Foxcatcher is paying them half a mil to make Foxcatcher the home of USA Wrestling. That also just seems like opposite of the way that transaction's supposed to go. Like, USA Wrestling should be paying rent to a venue. There shouldn't be a venue so desperate for USA Wrestling to come that they pay them. There is a very creepy, rich, desperate weirdo who very much wants to pay them to hang out with him. Yes. There's even a scene in this movie where DuPont talks about how he's only ever had one friend in his life. And he found out when he was 16 that his mother had been paying him to be his friend. DuPont is a lonely weirdo with more money than God. So this is not really like a surprise. So Mark wants to leave. But the Olympics are coming up, and essentially he makes a deal with Dave and DuPont. To be able to get out of it and go to BYU, which is where he had, had an offer to go, DuPont would get to be in his corner for the Olympic game, out there on the mat, like in between rounds. Mark starts out strongly, but he realizes, again, any of his success would not be attributed to himself. In this case, it's going to go to both Dave and DuPont. So he throws his match against an opponent from Turkey. He loses 14 to nothing, which is an insane scoreline for someone as dominant as Mark. What I appreciate about him doing that as well is that a 15-point margin would have been a tech fall, which immediately ends the match. So he didn't let it get to 15 because he wanted to prolong it as long as possible. He wanted the whole time limit to go out. I just want to add that layer. Why specifically losing 14 nothing is the biggest fuck you you could ever possibly give to your coach. 
Yeah, so he loses 14-0. He leaves Korea, never wrestles competitively again. He's just, he moves to Utah, takes a job at BYU as a coach. He does, one time eight years from this point, get called as a last-day replacement for UFC number nine, where he fights one time and wins, beating Gary Goodridge. And one of the few UFCs at that time that were not tournament style, it was just an undercard. It was so unpopular that they had to go back to tournament style for the next UFC. But other than that, his competitive career is done. But that's not the end of the movie, and that's not the end of the story of the Schultz family with the DuPonts, because Dave wanted the stability for his family that he never had growing up. Now that he's there, he's going to stay. And he stays for eight years. In real life, looks like he's about to leave when DuPont decides that he doesn't want to fund wrestling anymore. Again, compressed timelines in the movie. A increasingly paranoid DuPont drives to Dave's house on his property, because Dave is staying on his property. And while Dave is in his driveway with his kids and his wife, DuPont takes out a gun and shoots him and then drives off. Dave dies, and DuPont goes to jail, gets found guilty of third-degree murder, but also found mentally ill. So he gets sentenced to 13 to 30 years in prison, where he then dies. To this day, like a reason for the murder was never established. There's a lot of talk about DuPont just having a lengthy descent into paranoia and madness, hiring security to protect him at his already extremely secure massive compound. But there's also talk about he wanted Dave gone because he wanted to give space to his new favorite wrestler, Valentin Yordanov of Bulgaria, who was also training at Foxcatcher. There's some validity to this because after he died, DuPont left 80% of his will to Yordanov, which is about $300 million just to this random Bulgarian wrestler. Like James said, very rich weirdo, recruits Mark, then recruits Dave to replace Mark, then gets increasingly paranoid and murders Dave in cold blood for pretty much no reason. That's pretty much how that movie ends. It does have a brief cut to Mark getting ready to be in a cage match, which I think is like the reference to his one UFC fight, although it is nowhere near the same. But it is funny seeing Channing Tatum do that. But like the ending to this movie is extremely unsettling. One thing that I thought was important for this category, you know, going with the Michael Orr, you know, baseline, I want to talk about Mark's reactions to this film. Mark Schultz had been a consultant on the film, but as you can imagine, a movie about something so personal can cause strong feelings. A month after the movie came out, Mark noted on Twitter, quote, Foxcatcher scenes are mostly straight out of my book, but the relationships and personalities are complete fiction. This is a quote, so it's not grammatically correct. I love Foxcatcher is about me, stars Channing Tatum, and immortalized Dave. I hate the way I'm portrayed. Read Foxcatcher the book for truth. However, it seems he then came across a lot of articles about the movie that noted that homosexual implication, and Mark did not like that at all. Which I guess is understandable when the guy who the implication of a relationship is with both destroyed your career and murdered your brother. In a massive Twitter rant on New Year's Eve 2014, directed against Bennett Miller, the director, he said, and this is all in caps except for one now that I'll note, 
You crossed the line, Miller. We're done. Your career is over. You think I can't do it? Watch me. Next tweet. You think I'm going to sit back and watch you destroy my name and reputation I sweat blood for? You ain't seen nothing yet, dude. Next tweet. I built this house, and I'll tear it down. You think I can't take you down because you're a director? Watch me, Bennett. Next tweet. I can tolerate a lot of things, but I don't tolerate disrespect. We're done, Bennett. Next tweet. This is the only one not in caps. Everything I've ever said pause about the movie, I take it back. I hate it. 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 Next tweet. All caps again. I hate everything that scum touches. Everything. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. And then one last tweet. I hate Bennett Miller. He gets into more detail on his Facebook account where he has a, another rant longer because of the no character limit. Nothing uh, good has happened on Facebook since like 2009. Gets into a little more detail saying that he was not emotionally fragile. He never looked up to DuPont. And if DuPont had ever slapped him, he'd have knocked his head off. Quote, leaving the audience with a feeling that somehow there could have been a sexual relationship between DuPont and I is sickening and insulting lie. I told Bennett Miller to cut that scene out. He said it was to give the audience the feeling that DuPont was encroaching on your privacy and personal space. It wasn't explicit, so I didn't have a problem with it. Then after reading three or four reviews interpreting it sexually and jeopardizing my legacy, they need to have a press conference to clear the air or I will. However, just a month later, when Oscar nominations were announced, Foxcatcher was nominated for five awards, including Best Director, Best Actor for Steve Carell, Best Supporting Actor for Mark Ruffalo. I don't think I ever mentioned DuPont is played by Steve Carell, and it's like very creepy. He's always looking up like this, talking very slowly. Mark recants everything from his rant, and another Twitter thread says, Chang Tatum got robbed. He was so good it was unreal. I'm amazed he wasn't nominated. Bennett Miller is the greatest director ever. Third time's the charm. He's doing Oscar. I feel terrible about what I did to Bennett. I should have followed God, not man. Hashtag Foxcatcher is a miracle. I'm sorry I said I hated it. I love it. I love my interpretation and will ignore the haters. I'm never getting mad. I think the problem I had was the context of the movie. It's what happened was so hard. My brother's murder. My career ruined. I apologize to you before the world, Bennett. I'm sorry. Last tweet, I was temporarily insane. A couple months later, we get one more reaction from Mark Schultz. This time he actually gives an interview, and it's not just a long Twitter thread threatening to kill the director and then apologizing, saying he was temporarily insane. The interviewer tries to get his like full actual feelings, and he said, quote, I go back and forth. When I saw the film at Cannes last year, that was the first time I'd seen the final version. The audience gave it an eight-minute ovation. I was relieved because while I was watching it, it was really uncomfortable. I was like, that's not me. That never happened. But everyone jumped out of their seats and cheered, and I was like, holy crap, these people really liked the movie. Then the publicity started. The first article I read compared it to Behind the Candelabra, which is the Liberace movie. It might have been easier for Mark if he knew that at Cannes, they give long-standing ovations where eight-minute ovation no, is that not no, actually let him, long. Let him believe this. Let him believe not, this. He's just... Like, not knowing anything, he thinks eight-minute response, okay, it's good. Even though I was, I was uncomfortable, then it's good. Then when he hears about the Behind the Candelabra like comparisons, he said, I got so angry when I heard that. I thought, okay, maybe it's just this one guy. Then other articles were coming out. And then I read another article about this, and I was like, son of a bitch. Other people are thinking this. No way am I going to let this go on. Sony hired a publicist to try to control me. Make sure I didn't go off the ranch. Make sure I didn't explode. But nobody can control me. It's impossible. And I started reading other articles like that, and I started getting more and more angry. I called my publicist and said, hey, man, what are you doing? How can you let this happen? I want that guy's head on a platter, and I'm just pissed off. Finally, I read one article from the Washington Times where this guy made it sound like Bennett Miller intended to create this idea of a homosexual relationship between me and that low-life pig. I was like, that's it, you're fucking dead. 
I called up my publicist to say, you're fired. And I called up Bennett and threatened to kill him. It should be noted that the Washington Times article, because the Washington Times is a shit publication, did take a place that no other review had ever done and explicitly did claim that Bennett Miller tried to portray a homosexual relationship because they are a right-wing publication that is not about the truth. And so the thing that really set off Mark Schultz was actually just an outright fabrication. But I'd be lying if I said the implications weren't there in other more reputable reviews. Even with that, he said, like, he doesn't even quite know himself how he should feel about this movie. I'm so biased. I can't tell. My only opinion about the film is based on what other people think. And when people write to him, say they love the film, he thanks God. And he forgets about all the critics and reviewers who've been trying to imply other things. He said he's glad that things turned out the way he did because he's glad that his brother got immortalized. But he's not really happy about a lot of the things that happened other than that. I just think, talking about a movie that was so white savior racist, and now we get the actual person behind it suing over how terrible it was. To have a movie that causes the person portrayed in it to threaten to kill the director and then claim temporary insanity afterwards, still kind of be like on the fence of whether it's good or not because of how people review it. I just think that that fits the category so well. And I think that Mark Schultz deserves to be recognized for all of the incredible accomplishments he did that are seen before Foxcatcher and then still during Foxcatcher because contemporary times did not give him those accomplishments. They credit it to DuPont and to his brother, but Mark was his own person and he deserves to really be recognized for being one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. Well, I think all of those deaths at the end kind of killed the mood the way John killed Dave. But I think the way that we can resurrect the mood is to now take a wider look at these three and figure out which one we think best fits. And Diaz, something I want to, I guess, when you said that people were done dirty by their guy opics, I guess, how bleak are we trying to get here with these three? Well, I certainly wasn't trying to get to murder of a brother. That Which wasn't is, for the record, that was on my radar. fully true on that one. Like, that's certainly not yeah. anything that the, yeah, the Bible That, that is all true. Fully true. Yeah, I guess, yeah, the idea that I had in mind, and it comes down to interpretation, but the idea I basically had in mind was just, there's this movie that everybody knows, and it portrayed this kind of real-life event, but it got a lot of facts wrong, and we're here to set the record straight. Well, then what complicates Foxcatcher is it seems like even Mark Schultz doesn't necessarily agree on the overall accuracy of it, though it, it seems that it does try of these three to maybe hold the most accuracy. The one thing with yours, Diaz, is while well, it's certainly based on that team, it is pretty explicitly Hoosier is a work of fiction. In its end product, yes, but the film does not exist without the basketball team. It, no, it, absolutely. This is not an original script. Like, if you wanted to argue, so for what I would say is, like, if I were to bring up Chuck Wepner as, like, mm -hmm. done dirty by his representation as Rocky Balboa, I think that's a big enough disconnect. Okay. You wouldn't be able to make that tie. But here, you know, we have several elements that had to be changed to make it a better story for Hollywood. I, I think... Uh, Bobby had a quote at one point that was like, you know, I understand you can't make a movie about everybody hugging the whole season and then we win. 
I guess the the one thing I struggle with is, and I love the story of Bobby Plum, Hoosiers is the story of Jimmy Chitwood. That's the same problem I have with it. Like I noted it earlier, but people who watch that movie don't learn about Bobby Plum. And there's no, that means there's no real. Which is uh, why our podcast exists <laughs> so that people can know that Bobby Plump exists. Yes, yes, people can know that Bobby Plump exists on our podcast. But when the topic is the real story behind guys, Hoosiers is a work of fiction. It is a fictionalized ben, it, account with fictionalized names and at least Foxcatcher in Cinderella Man, even if Cinderella Man is really focused on a different boxer. They show real people and people who watch it can draw conclusions about how those people actually were. So we have, okay, Max Baer was a piece of shit. Oh, Mark Schultz was an insecure, possibly homosexual guy. He does seem to have been a little bit insecure. Well, insecure now, like. After oh, insecure about the whole like shadow of his brother for his entire life thing. Like you, yeah, they they play it up like significantly though. Like I mean, as he said, all of the interpersonal relationships and character dynamics in the movie, at least in his opinion, are completely fictionalized. He says that he did not have a good impression of Dupont like from the beginning, and that Dupont promised that he would kind of be on the periphery and not be there often, like in actuality. But the movie played it up as like, no, I really love him as a father and maybe in other ways. Here's my counterpoint to all of that, Xavier. If we want to bring it back to the done dirty, who is done dirtier than the person whose existence Hollywood tried to Mm. erase entirely, Mm. entirely? They tried to get rid of him entirely. They don't want us to remember Bobby Plump. But what I posit (laughs) is that this podcast must remember Bobby Plump. That's compelling. They should just make a documentary on Bobby Plump then. They don't need Hoosiers. It doesn't have to when, be a fictionalized story. It could well, be something well, real. And to yours, Xavier, regarding like when he said all of those things were totally fictional, was that during his temporary insanity that he is acknowledged? No, we, he's wrote, we he's wrote don't a, know. He's wrote a book. He, he, I, he's, he's wrote like an actual autobiography. Sure, but he also does seem to oscillate on how he feels. And so I'm not even entirely sure that we can establish a baseline of how done dirty he is. And I think that kind of introduces some difficulty in judging it. But God, the, but, the but, fact that he was a raced case is pretty compelling. Sure. But did Bobby Plump ever threaten to murder David Anspa? No, but he did play for the Sixers. He played for an oil 66ers, which is a pretty good bit. It was a petroleum company, though. Yeah, it's a petroleum company that paid. Uh, there's a, there's no ethical fandom under capitalism. Ad, we've it established was paid that. advertising for a petroleum company, James. We we've already. I, how many fucking teams today have paid advertising for petroleum companies on them? I mean, the thing I say for Bobby is, how many times are we going to bring up somebody who's named one of the fifty most influential people in their state for the twentieth century, and neither of you had heard of him before I even brought him to this podcast? Yeah, but that's Indiana. <laughs> we have friends in Indiana. Well, we got one friend. I, we have one friend in Indiana. I mean, I think one of the hallmarks of a guy is making the best with what you got. And Bobby Plump had his next door neighbor that shot on the same hoop as him. And like eight other people that basically came to his family court to play basketball. It was like the one place that they could play outdoors. And he goes from all that, pulling himself out of literal shit and embracing the shit, and rising up to a championship. What more guy trade is there? That is very Nick Sirianni planting the flowers. Here's the question for me. 
is it worse to be erased or is it worse to be made out to be a villain that you were not with your name attached to it? That is true. Personally, I think it's worse to have negative connotations to the actual individual. Like Max, I'm glad you brought up that his family had problems with it because I was going to say like, obviously Max was no longer with us when Cinderella Man came out. Yeah, but Max Mayer Jr., the handsome hillbilly. Yes. So, like, I, I always think it's worse when it's a real person. It's like, all right, the thing about Hoosiers being the Jimmy Chitwood story is that people who know Bobby Plump can be like, it was inspired by me. That was my story, but they took liberties, like, changed names, everything. Like, so it's Bobby different. Plump is proud of the movie. Bobby Plump does like the movie. And, he like, does. anything that isn't perfect, you can say, oh, it's because they changed, because it's a piece of fiction. For Max Baer and for Mark Schultz, it's like, no, that's me on the screen that you are now hating or kind of disgusted with or now have like a, a bad opinion of that is not how things actually went but very clear what the inspiration for this topic was it was about the blind side it was about michael Ower, and that is a movie and that's a movie that, that gave people really bad opinions of michael Ower to the point where michael Ower teams thought he was stupid so they wanted to dumb down playbooks for him and thought he wasn't smart enough to learn things and it impacted his whole career because they all thought he was dumb as shit because of how that movie portrayed him. That's the thing. Like, I get, I, I, I like Hoosiers. I feel like if we're trying to compare it to The Blind Side and how that impacted Michael Ower's career. I'm not. The I'm only, not. not the only two, that, was the, that was like the inspiration that you gave us for the topic. And it seems like Cinderella Man with Max Bayer and Fox Hater with Mark Schultz fit the tone of that way better than, you know, the generally happy with his portrayal Bobby Plump. To play devil's advocate on two points. One, admittedly, Max Bayer did also portray a fictionalized version of himself that built to this. So I, I do feel like I need to reiterate that one time that like, while he may not have understood the implications of that, there was some partaking in that myth building. And one more thing that I will say, I think in Bobby Plump's favor the one thing that they took out of him, like you talk about, oh, we've, we've kind of eliminated in people's ideas of Michael Ower, the intelligence. The thing that they kind of take out of Bobby Plump for Jimmy Chitwood is that dog in him. Because Jimmy Chitwood uh, maybe doesn't love basketball that much. And from all accounts, Bobby Plump loved hoops very, very much. That's a pretty major thing to have removed, your, your burning passion for the game. His lasting legacy to this day is a restaurant called Plump's Last Shot. He beat Oscar Robertson on the way to the championship. He did beat what Oscar Robertson. What are we doing here? He I've does, been he does crush two not different Cinderella runs on the way to the championship. And I've been encouraged by listeners to stop being a pushover on these things. And I've been a pushover <laughs> before. I ain't being a pushover anymore. Bobby Plump. Didn't say that he wanted the last shot. He's not that cocky. Very humble man. But I'm going to call the last shot for Bobby Plump. Bobby Plump belongs in this goddamn hall. I'm fine if James chooses to vote for Bobby Plump, but just based on my understanding of what you told us this category was going to be about, even if it wasn't what you intended, I can't vote for a fictionalized story with a fictionalized version of a person with not the same name. It just... It doesn't have the same effect as the example that was given. Doesn't really matter at this point. It's up to James to choose whatever they want. Xavier cannot do those things. I can. 
I think I think I can go with Bobby Plum. It would act against the ethos we have cultivated here in the importance of dog to when someone, no matter how fondly they look back on this film later on that is related to their life, sees themselves up there without that dog within them, empty of dog. That would devastate me. Shout outs to Bobby Plump for being able to rise above that and still enjoy this beloved film. And shout outs to Bobby Plump for what he's about to receive. Well, it's it's a tough week. It's it was three great entries, three great films, told in various tones, a very sad psychological thriller that ends in murder, a great Cinderella story in its own right, with Max Baer Sr. being unfairly portrayed, um, unfairly represented by the name Jimmy Chitwood and unfairly represented with the amount of dog in him, as as James was just putting it. But it's a great run. It's a great real story. I mean, we haven't talked enough about how Big O went to Crispus Attics, which is just the fucking coolest name for an all-black school. Big O got his two titles, but he had to learn how to win a title first. Up-close observation, seeing Mr. Indiana Basketball for 1954, growing up, Avoiding the pile of shit, nay, embracing the pile of shit and emerging from it to become not just a champion, but also a guy. Bobby Gene Plump, welcome to the Hall of Guy. Congratulations on your second award that Larry Bird will never receive. Yeah, Larry ain't never getting in this hall. Um, Maybe we should, uh, we should go to the restaurant and we should hit up Bobby Plump and try and award him this. I would love to. And from all indications, it seems like he would be humored by the whole thing i do so in 2012 uh indiana state basketball came out with an all-century team he's on the team but i just wanted to name a couple other people that were on that team real quick if i can so we had steve alford who i mentioned larry bird made the team mike conley jr we have scott skiles we have eric gordon we have the big o we also have the big dog glenn robinson craziest name of all john wooden yeah right he did start there john wooden played his high school ball there and bobby tells a story of how he knew how important that championship game was going to be because john wooden never talked about missing a free throw that would have tied it when he played in the state championship for (laughs) martinsville like even after he wins all those championships at ucla that's still john wooden's everlasting memory of basketball is can't believe i missed that fucking free throw you know, well, speaking of uh, having that dog in him and making Diaz happy, I just saw a tweet that said, Greg Dortch just put one of the Vikings DBs in a blender during one-on-ones. Dortch continues to make his case. Diaz, we're about to have Greg Dortch starting wide receiver for the Arizona Cardinals. Look, my love affair with Greg Dortch runs so deep. That was, I think 2018 was when he came out. Was he undrafted by the Jets or was he a six-round pick? 2019 undrafted. And, you know, Xavier and I are in our dynasty league together. And I staked my claim that Greg Dortch is going to be this fucking sleeper. He's going to show up big for me. Took him with the 16th pick in the third round. I named my team Dortch 316. We made the playoffs that year. We didn't win at all. Dortch bounced around the league for like three years, never playing any serious snaps anywhere. Until last year, Rondale Moore goes down. Greg Dortch steps up and he's good. And look what happens when you throw Greg Dortch to football. I always knew all of our takes are right eventually if you just wait long enough. 
shout-outs to Diaz for having the vision of the guy that Ray Dorch could be, the guy that he is perhaps becoming, a future guy in the making, one that we'll certainly keep our eyes on. But if you all want to keep eyes on guys that we've got, in the meantime, you can check all of our info out at bit.ly slash remember that guy, all one word, all lowercase. Thank you to producer Craig and all the coders behind him. Thank you to our musical director, Don Ham, And thank you, dear listener, for joining us once again as we hope to someday join our new guy, Bobby Plump. Almost said stump there for a second, but nope. Too good of a name to forget. Bobby Plump, as for names of mine this whole time, it's been James. I've been the very special guest, Xavier. And I think Robert Stump is like a congressman or something. I'm pretty sure that's a real person. That sounds right. John Tupont once claimed to be the Dalai Lama. I've been Diaz, but as the Dalai Lama once said, <laughs> share your knowledge. It is a way to achieve guidance. So like you and I have talked about how the greatest player in my high school's history was playing at wide receiver at the same time, like was teammates with Paul. Yes. Yeah. So their running back at the time was Xavier's buddy, also named Paul. Yeah. <laughs> Why do we know Bryant University so well? Well, he had gone to uh, Don Bosco for high school, but he's still one of the best football players ever produced by Warwick, New York. Who wins in a fame battle, him or Stephanie Dolson? I mean, Stephanie Dolson wasn't produced by Warwick, New York, but... So, sorry, the general area. My Debbie Dolson went, went to our rival, Minnesink Valley. That's like how, when I talk about Tavon Austin, Baltimore boy and all that. But man, he went to Dunbar and like, fuck the poets. Fuck the poets. A thing that doesn't get said a lot, I feel like, outside of Baltimore City in reference to Paul Lawrence Dunbar High School. 